Well, good morning. Happy Easter. He is risen. There's a, there's a lot of things that happen when we get excited about great victories. Especially in sports, when a great victory happens, and especially when, when there's been a key performer, someone who's kind of gone above and beyond, whose performance has been so good and so great that everyone knows that the outcome of that game was because of that player. What happens in those times is that often people will, will jump up and they'll surround that player and then they'll pick that player up and they'll put them on their shoulders so that everyone around is able to see that person, to celebrate that person, to acknowledge that person because they're the reason why the outcome of the game was what it was. To give you an example of this, I'd like you to, to watch just a, a little clip from uh, an incredible Super Bowl that happened in 1998. Let's watch that together. Super Bowl 32. Ten seconds left. Come down to seven, six. Champions, final score, Denver 31, Green Bay 24, down to the field to my partner Scott Hastings. Now, those of you guys who know just how much of a Broncos fan I am knew probably that I was going to work football into the, into the message or I was going to bring the Broncos into it in some way. Uh, I do want to just apologize to all you Green Bay Packers fans out there. I am very, uh, I'm sure that that was a, a hard moment, and I'm very sorry for uh, triggering such a traumatic experience for you. But for Broncos fans, that, that Super Bowl was an incredibly important uh, game. And to understand why it was so important, you kind of have to understand a little bit of the history that led up to that Super Bowl. You see, up until that point, the Broncos had been in four separate Super Bowls and they had lost all of them. In fact, their quarterback at the time, John Elway, had led the Broncos to three different Super Bowls, one in 1986, one in 1988, and one in 1989. John Elway had led the Broncos to three different Super Bowls in the course of four years, and the Broncos had lost every single one of those by an average margin of 34 points. So the Broncos had gotten to the big game and then just got schlacked, and they got destroyed. And what ultimately kind of became the narrative about the Broncos was, well, sure, they could get to the Super Bowl, but they could not win the big game. And so if you fast forward then almost 10 years, and now it's 1998, and the Broncos find themselves in the Super Bowl for the fifth time facing the Green Bay Packers, and everyone was pretty much convinced that the Broncos were going to lose again and that they were going to become 
the greatest Super Bowl losers in the history of the NFL in going 0-5. Now, when the game happened, when the game happened, uh, right, the Broncos were leading most of the game. But in the second half, things kind of started to turn towards Green Bay's favor. And at the start of the fourth quarter, a turnover happened, and the Green Bay Packers marched 85 yards down the field, scored a touchdown, and tied the game. All the momentum was now in the Green Bay Packers' favor. And everybody, at least as a Broncos fan, I was just assuming, okay, here we go again. But then at the end of the game, with actually a minute and 35 seconds left, John Elway led the Broncos down the field. You guys might remember the helicopter play where John Elway, they need, the Broncos needed a first down, and he broke out of the pocket, and he ran, and he dove for the first down, and, and the Packers players hit him, and he flipped around kind of like a helicopter, but he got the first down. Somebody, iconic play. It was during that drive at the end of the game, John Elway led them down the field, and they ultimately score a touchdown, which became the game-winning drive, and the Broncos won their first Super Bowl. And what happened? Before the game was even over, players surround John Elway, grab him, heave him up on their shoulders so that everyone could celebrate all that he had done and the performance that not only in that game, but over the course of his career, all of the many times that he had had kind of uh, willed the team to victory, multiple different times, fourth quarter comebacks and all these things, we wanted to celebrate all that John Elway had done. Now the reality is, we do this in sports, but we also do this in life. When something incredible happens, we celebrate. And we want those who are responsible for those, uh, those victories and those things to celebrate. We want them to receive the praise and the glory. And this is exactly what happens on the morning of the resurrection when Jesus is discovered alive, no longer dead. Then there is a movement amongst the people to celebrate and to lift Jesus up. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to take a look at this this morning. Matthew chapter 28 is the the record, one of the the records in all the gospel accounts. There's a record of of Jesus' resurrection. But to do this this morning, I want us to kind of connect ourselves to the story just a little bit. I want you to imagine yourself as a disciple of Jesus. Put yourself into the story of that morning. Now, leading up to that morning, there was a lot of craziness for the disciples, to be quite honest with you. Let's just imagine as you're a disciple, you've been following Jesus for several years. And you've seen Jesus do things that no one has ever done. You've heard Jesus teach things. No one has ever taught. And he has taught in ways that no one has ever taught like. He has stirred everything. And as you, have, as you have been following Jesus and watching his ministry and seeing all the things that he's doing, 
you ultimately are absolutely convinced, without a shadow of a doubt, that he is the Messiah. He is the coming one. He's the promised uh, Christ. And you're convinced that he is now coming to set all things right and to restore Israel back to prominence and to throw off the yoke of the Romans. And, and Jesus is here and he's going he's gonna to get everything back to the way it should be. And then he dies. Now it happened incredibly quickly. Just within a few days, you go from being convinced he's the, the Christ to suddenly seeing him die a gruesome and painful death on a cross. You see them take his body down off of the cross, put his body into a tomb, and a stone rolled over, and that basically it's done. It's over. What just happened? You can imagine what it must have been like for those women who on that early Sunday morning are making their way that couple-mile journey from Bethany to the tomb, trying to figure out what just happened as they carry spices to go minister to the body of Jesus. And that's where then this story takes a dramatic turn. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1, and we'll, uh, we'll start there and we'll read to verse 10. It says, After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid and yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Now, imagine in this moment what it must have been like for these women. They are walking to the tomb, carrying an amazing amount of grief and sorrow, probably a lot of bewilderment, in the sense that they had been just a few days before following Jesus, thinking everything's going great. Jesus is going to you know, be our Messiah and restore Israel. And then now they have just seen him die, taken down off the cross, buried in a tomb. And they are walking to the, to the grave to minister to his body. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced deep grief before. But a lot of times I've, in my own life, what I've had to experience, it feels a lot like you're just overwhelmed with emotion in the sense so much that you can't, you can't think clearly. Nothing seems to, you know, make sense to you. And I'm guessing that these women, as they were walking to the, 
the grave are trying to figure it all out. Like, what just happened? Trying to take step after step, right? Just stay on the path. Don't break down. Don't lose it. Uh, you know, hold it together. And then they get close to the tomb and they see that the stone has been rolled away. Now, this has got to be kind of a shock to them. That's not what they were expecting. In fact, in the other accounts, it actually, they're discussing amongst themselves as they were walking, who's going to roll the stone away for us? How is this going to work? We probably won't be able to do it ourselves. When they get there, though, and they see the stone has been rolled away, now all of a sudden, in the midst of their grief, in the midst of this sorrow, in the midst of of kind of the emotion of it all, now something about the, the experience isn't meshing. And then there's an angel. And the angel says this, right? Don't be afraid, for I know who you're looking for. You're looking for Jesus. And he's not here. He's risen just as he told you he was going to rise from the dead. And he says, "Go, come on in, look. Look where his body was laid. It's not there. Now go tell the disciples, he's risen. He's going to meet you in Galilee, so head there. And then I, I love what he says here at the end, now I have told you. I don't know how many of you guys have seen The Mandalorian, but in, in the first season of The Mandalorian, the, the Mandalorian encounters this character who was kind of helping him rebuild, you know, uh, uh, droid and, and ship and all this kind of stuff. And the guy, every time after he would say something, he would say, I have spoken. All right, that's exactly what this angel does here. He just says, look, I have spoken. I have told you. Everything you need to know, I have just communicated to you. Now go. And so they do. And listen to what it says there in verse 8 again. So the woman hurried away from the tomb. The word there literally means to run or to go with haste. So they're running away from the tomb. And how are they running? It says, number one, they are afraid yet filled with joy. Now this, this idea that they were afraid is probably more tied to they're just now confused. They don't understand everything that's happening. They're trying to figure it out. And imagine what it would be like, literally, if, if you had gone to the funeral of your best friend, right? And you'd seen them in a casket. You'd, you'd seen their dead body. And then they close the casket and you follow the casket out. They put it in the hearse and they drive to the cemetery. And you get to the cemetery and they carry the casket out and then they lower the casket down into that six foot hole in the ground. And then you watch as in they they put the dirt now over the casket and they fill the hole up with dirt. And now, six feet under the ground, you know there is a casket that contains the body of your friend. And a couple of days later, you decide, I'm going to go put cask uh, uh, flowers on the, on the graveside. I'm going to honor my friend. And so when you get your flowers, you drive to the cemetery and you get there and you go to put your flowers on their grave site. And when you get there, suddenly you discover that now all the dirt is removed from the, the hole and it's now piled up next to it. 
And you, you're like, this doesn't make sense. What just happened? I watched them fill up this hole. Why is it now unfilled? Why is there a pile of dirt there? And you get up to the, the hole and you look down into the hole. And what do you see? You see an open casket and no body in there. How many of you guys think that, am I going a little crazy here? Like what exactly is happening? Right, you, you're, you're desperately trying to put it all together. Like what is going on? Make this make sense. And so as you look down in the hole, you see there's a casket, but no body, pile of dirt, and then suddenly there, sitting on the pile of dirt is an angel that says, I know you're looking for your friend, but he's not here. He's risen. <laughs> I'm guessing that you would be probably a little afraid. Like, am I going crazy? What's going on here? That's what these ladies are navigating. But they're also tremendously joyful. They are overwhelmed with joy. And in fact, the NIV here where it says that they are yet filled with joy, that, that, that's actually a really poor translation for what actually is going on. There are two words here in the Greek that this filled with joy is translated from. The first word is megas, and the second one is keros. Now, keros is what we get the word joy from. Megas means great, right? It's where we get the word mega, big. And this word megas can not only mean great, it also can mean loud. So what these women were now leaving the tomb, they're a little bit bewildered and fearful, like what in the world's going on? But they are also filled with megas keras, great or loud joy. This is the kind of joy that you can't hold inside. It comes out of you, right? This is the kind of joy that if you have it, everyone within a quarter of a mile of you knows you have it right? When I was in high school, I, uh, I went golfing for the very first time. I was a sophomore in high school. My dad took me to Beaver Creek Golf Course in Haver, Montana. And we were on our fourth hole, and I got a hole in one. Now, now trust me, this was not a tremendously impressive shot. It wasn't a great shot. But I hit it, and I remember watching the ball kind of fly through the air, and then it landed on the ground and rolled then up onto the green. And then it kind of rolled towards the pin. And we're watching, watching, watching. And then it disappeared. And suddenly, out of me erupted, Megas Keras. <laughs> right? Great joy. It just comes flying out of me. And I'm screaming and yelling and celebrating. I jumped up on one of the benches. I was, you know, my dad is screaming and yelling. Everyone on the course knew someone had gotten a hole-in-one. When I got into the clubhouse at the turn, after we finished hole number nine, we went up to the, uh, to the attendant there and, and told her that we had got a hole, I'd gotten a hole-in-one. And she's like, oh, so it was you. People all morning were coming in saying, somebody must have got a hole-in-one on number four. We heard the screaming and the yelling. That's exactly what these women were navigating as they left now the presence of this angel who had told them, right, Christ is no longer dead. He's alive. 
go tell the disciples. So they're, they're now hurrying away. They're running with great joy, right? It's coming out of them. And in the midst of this buzz and this celebration and this, you know, chatter, everyone kind of knows it. And then something really, really fun happens. Now, I've, I've studied this passage. I've read the Bible, studied the Bible for 25 years. And for some reason, I just have never noticed this about this encounter. It says in verse 8, as they're leaving the temple, or they're leaving the the tomb, and they're running to tell the disciples, verse 9, it says, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. (laughs) Now, I just find that hilarious, to be honest with you. They're now running down the path. They're heading into Jerusalem or maybe back to Bethany where some of the other disciples were. They're now on their way, and then all of a sudden, Jesus appears to them. And Jesus' first words is greetings. This this word here, this translated greetings, is just kind of this common, like, hello in English. It's a Greek word that means be glad or rejoice. It's kind of a, it was a common greeting of that day. And I was thinking about this earlier, like if I, if I had died, right, and then I, I rose from the dead and now I'm alive again, okay, but all of the staff here at Harvest Springs, they all think I'm still dead. And so they're sitting in a staff meeting a couple of days later, and they're kind of feeling a little sad and bewildered. You know, man, Corey's dead. And, and I know this sounds a little morbid, but just hang with me here. And, and so they're all sitting there and kind of grieving and mourning together. And, and, uh, and so they're, they're in that first staff meeting afterwards, like, what do we do and all that stuff? If I then appear into that staff meeting to them, I wonder what my first words would be. Jesus, this first appearance to these women is just, Hey, guys, greetings, hello. If you're in Texas, Jesus was like, howdy. If he's in high school, maybe it's like, sup. Just a common average greeting to them, but it changes everything, does it not? And when the women see Jesus, the resurrected, living Christ. Notice what it says their response is. They came to him, they clasped his feet, and they worshiped him. And they worshiped him. They come to him. They clasp his feet, which means they're now on the ground, prostrate before him, grabbing hold of his feet, and they're worshiping him. Now, this idea of worship is actually connected to this idea of lifting someone up on our shoulders. You see, the Greek word that we translate for worship is the Greek word proskuneo. It means to prostrate yourself. 
to make yourself low. To fall on your face before someone. Now, why would this be this posture of worship? Because most of the time when we talk about worship in the church, it's connected to singing songs or music in some way. So we're like, hey, you know, hey, we're going to go into a time of worship. But that's actually not a biblical concept of what worship is. A biblical concept of worship is that we make ourselves low. We bow down. Now, we certainly can worship through music, but you can worship through silence. You can worship through reading the word, right? It's more, worship is more of a posture of the soul. These women, when they meet the resurrected Jesus, they proskuneo. They bow down before him. They lower themselves in his presence. Because I often wonder sometimes what would be my response when I meet the resurrected Jesus? What would be my response if I saw Jesus face to face, if he was physically standing then in front of me? What would I do? You know that song I can only imagine? Describes it so well, right? That uh, would I stand in your presence or to my knees, would I fall? Would I sing hallelujah or would I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine, right? Those, that phrase, like what would we do if we were in the presence of Jesus suddenly? I think we would do exactly what these women did. We would come to him. We would bow down before him and we would worship him. John the Baptist describes this posture so well, this posture of worship. In John 3.30, here's what he says. He says, I must become less. He must become greater. I must become less. He must become greater. And this brings me to the very first point. When you see Jesus clearly, when you see the resurrected Jesus, there'll be no question what the proper posture will be. The natural response, the right response, the one that will just come to you will be that we bow ourselves low and we lift him The natural response when we see the resurrected Jesus is to understand that we now are in the presence of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, the one who is worthy to be worshipped. <clears throat> and because he is worthy, we bow ourselves low. Why? So that everyone can see he's the one who's worthy. He's the one who deserves the praise. He's the one who deserves the credit. Like John the Baptist, he wasn't thinking, well, how do I, how do I get more prominence in my ministry? How do I get a, more, a greater following? How do I get the, the promotion? How do I do more and get my name out there more? How do I get all that stuff? Right? John the Baptist wasn't thinking that at all. 
when he now is face to face with Jesus Christ, what is his proper response? No, I got to get out of the way. I've got to bow myself low. I must become less. He must become greater. He's got to take the sinners. I've got to get him up on my shoulders so that everyone can see him because it's not about me. It's about him. Notice when these women saw Jesus, they didn't come to him saying, Jesus, do this for me. Jesus, do that for me. Hey, can you answer these questions? Can you explain these things to us? No. The very first thing they do is they come to him, they bow before him, and they worship. And you and I have to understand, man, so many of us, we come into church, we come to God, and we want him to do things for us. We want him to prove himself. We want him to, you know, fix our marriages. We want him to fix our families. We want to fix, you know, give us the promotion, get us more resources, more money, Lord. You know, do all the things that we want. Make our lives better, Lord. But trust me, when we see the resurrected Jesus, there is no question what needs to happen. There is no question who is then the one that should receive the, the attention and the glory and the honor. Guys, Jesus doesn't have to do another thing to be worthy of our worship and our praise. Jesus doesn't have to do anything for us to be worthy to receive the praise and the glory and the honor of every creature and every person, past, present, and future. Jesus doesn't have to prove another thing because when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he arose a victor over everything. And Paul writes in Philippians that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He doesn't have to do anything more. He doesn't have to prove himself to you, not a single bit. He has already proved himself worthy. And guys, I've, I've read the end of the book. I know how this thing wraps itself up. And in fact, if you go to Revelation chapter 5, we're going to read the whole chapter. And I want you to see what happens when the resurrected Christ is revealed. The Apostle John gets a vision of the things that are to come. And he writes this, this book of Revelation, this future picture. And notice what happens. He's given a vision into heaven, and it says here in verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, this is God the Father, There's in his right hand is a scroll, written within and on the back, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So the question then echoes out over all of heaven, over all of earth, over all that's under the earth, right? Over all history, who is worthy 
to open this scroll. And in verse 3 it says, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Obviously, John looks at it and goes, if there's no one that's worthy to open this scroll, we are in deep, deep trouble. And he begins to weep, knowing just what this means for all of creation. If no one's worthy, then we're in deep trouble, guys. And he's weeping and lamenting. And then it says in verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. You don't have to cry. Because why? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is that lion of the tribe of Judah? Remember John the Baptist when he spoke of Jesus and he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb of God. This is Jesus, this elder is speaking of. And it says then in verse 6, In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down. They did what? They proskuneoed. They bowed down before him. Right? They fell down before the lamb. This exact same posture as the women when they see the Lamb of God, risen in front of them, they come to him, they fall down and grasp his feet and they worship him. Exactly what happens in heaven. When the Lamb is revealed, he took the, uh, the scroll and the elders and the four living creatures fall down and worshiped him, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse nine, and they sang a song, listen to this song of worship, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Oh man, I can't wait to hear that song sung over all of creation. Then John says he looked, and I heard sounds around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels so all of a sudden now all of heaven erupts in praise and it says uh, these angels singing numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands all saying with a loud voice verse 12 worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing Again, just put yourself in this, in this, uh, in the throne room of room of God, hearing everyone sing the glory and the praise to who, the Lamb of God. All of it for Jesus Christ. Every 
individual, the creatures, the elders, all the angels now lifting Christ up on their shoulders, saying he is the one who is worthy to receive all of this praise and glory and honor. And then listen to what we ultimately will do. Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven, that includes you and me, whether you are a believer in Jesus Christ or not, this will be something you will speak. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So, so good. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. And then notice what happens one more time. And the elders, proskuneto, they fall down before the Lamb and they worship. I don't know what will happen when you are face to face with Jesus Christ? The Bible says there's really only one of two things. You either join with all of heaven in celebrating the fact that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you bow down in worship, lifting him up on your shoulders so that he can receive all the praise and the glory and the honor that he is due. Or if you've resisted him, if you've rejected him, if you've lived for yourself, you will have to declare that, but not in an act of worship. I'm guessing that you will confess that he is Lord, but it will be an act of terror for you. Because you know that you're not right with God and you haven't bowed your heart to him and you haven't lifted him up. There's really only one of two things that can happen when it's all said and done. You can be one who praises him or one who was forced to acknowledge his lordship and his authority to bring a righteous judgment upon you for your unwillingness to surrender fully to his worthiness. This morning, I'd like you to Consider what it means to proskuneo. To be face to face with the risen Jesus Christ. And will your heart bow down and surrender? Or will it resist him and be forced into judgment at some point in the future? Guys, today would be the perfect day to allow your lives to simply be humble, to come to him, to bow at his feet, and to hail him as the resurrected king. And if you need to do that this morning, I want to challenge you and give you an opportunity to do so. So with every head bowed and eye closed, if you know that you need to make Christ the king of your life, 
if you know that you need to spiritually come and bow your life down before Christ and hail Him as the resurrected King, the Lamb of God, who is worthy of all blessing and glory and honor. If you know you need to do that this morning, then I want to invite you to just commit your life to Him, to bow before Him, and I'm going to pray for you. So Father, I pray for those who in this morning, in this moment, need to surrender their lives to you fully and wholly. Father, you promised that if you would be lifted up, you will draw all men to, my, to yourself. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray, Lord, that as we have lifted you up, the resurrected King, that you would do the work of drawing hearts and lives to you. And for those in those moments who are bowing now down before you for the first time, hailing you as King, we pray, Lord, that you would redeem them, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit. You deliver them and set them free that they might follow you and become fully devoted followers of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, members of your family. And we ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Amen.